0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. We seem to be in a strange cloud of reality right now that is part denial and part fear. Here in mid-Missouri, and especially in Boone County, we watched in horror the vertiginous curve of the pandemic in other parts of the world and our own country, and we diligently stayed home and helped to keep our community safe. The arts responded quickly and decisively, closing down all events. As many of us sat at True False Documentaries that first weekend in March, we had no idea that that would be the last arts event we attended in the world of the old normal. Our newest normal now taking shape before us is that we too are looking at a pandemic curve that is getting steeper and steeper. And having been cooped up and diligent for so long, It is understandable that we want a taste of the old world. We desperately want things to get back to how they used to be so that we can go to movies and theatre shows, attend luncheons and meet pals for dinner. we just go back to school. And for arts organisations that have seen their income reduced to almost nothing, the desire and the need to resume operations is huge. But our safe haven is a lot less safe. Than it was back in March and April, and the old normal continues to retreat in the rear-view mirror. This week, the Talking Horse Productions Board of Directors made the difficult decision to cancel the rest of its season. I talked to Talking Horse's artistic director, Adam Bretzky, just a few hours before the decision was made, but you can hear in our chat on today's show the energy-sapping turmoil of these months. Of uncertainty. Also, coming up on the show is a chat with the Columbia Art League's executive director, whose one year anniversary of starting with CAL was this week. And I chat also with an up and coming star of the musical and operatic stage, Mizzou Theatre undergraduate Anthony Blatter. So I hope that you will be able to stay with us for this next hour of super safe arts immersion as we take our weekly tour of the arts in this peculiar, liminal time. Let's make our first stop today at my old stomping ground, the Columbia Art League, where the perfect person took over my former executive director role, the fabulous Kelsey Hammond. Good morning, Kelsey, slash Q2. (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. It is an auspicious day today. It is your one-year anniversary as Executive Director of the Columbia Art League. So congratulations on getting year one under your belt. Thank you. (laughs) Even if it wasn't quite the first year you expected. Yes, exactly. So I wonder, as you look back and ponder year one, what are some of the highlights of the first year?
1: I think... I mean, just in general, being back in, I mean, there there are obviously things that are just Art League related, that sort of, you know, receptions and seeing people looking at the art, really, you know, putting their face right up and and standing back and engaging in each artwork is always thrilling and um, talking to people about their process and also talking to people about feeling like they've failed if they weren't selected, but then kind of talking them through that and what that's like. And there's lots of stuff that I love about that that has been wonderful, getting the Boone County Art Show, sort of <laughs> seeing how that whole process works <laughs> and you know the um, the specialness of our volunteers and how dedicated they are to Cal and all of those things have been really wonderful. And I think for me personally, the people I work with here, including the board, are so kind and so appreciative of – not just me, but of art and understanding that art is essential. And I think that that is not something that I've experienced before in the same way. And so I think that has been the most sort of profound is that it feels less like a struggle to fight for the rights of arts being included in things here, which obviously I think makes sense, but that wasn't my experience before. And so it, it constantly felt like trying to prove that the arts are essential and here it's known and felt. And so it's getting that across to the the wider community, of course, but I don't know, it just feels very, it just feels like the right place. It feels so good. And I'm, I have enjoyed my time here, even through all of this hard, <laughs> hard stuff that's been happening lately. So yeah, it's been good. So you're definitely glad you took the job. Oh my gosh. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I just really, I feel like when you know you're in the right spot, it, it fills you up and you don't um, you're excited to go to work and you, you get it. And it, it just feels lived in your body instead of it sort of like, oh, I'm doing this thing again. You know, there's no trudging around. It's sort of, it's not quite prancing, but it's sort of in between those two things. So,
0: so now with one year behind you, and you've seen the inside workings and how the whole thing fits together in terms of Cal and the community. So I'm not going to hold you to any specifics, but in general terms, <laughs> what would you like Cal to do more of over the next few years. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that we we have such a great opportunity and space, and, and even more now that we've discovered how to host a virtual <laughs> gallery <laughs> show, the two really open up the idea of who shows here. I mean, obviously, our members help keep us open. So we absolutely want to have shows just devoted to them and their work. But thinking about how we can make our space the most accessible possible and really opening it up to marginalized artists and making sure that people feel welcome here. I think that's a huge, um, that's a huge space that we need to grow into and, and really break down some barriers perceived or real. So that's big. Um, And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a long process. That's not something that can happen tomorrow without it feeling sort of performed. So it needs to be really felt and that's, you know, including other organizations and people and, and all that kind of stuff. So we're making moves slowly but surely in that area but I think, too, just just getting to talk to more artists, I feel like this space has such a great opportunity for that community feel. And I think that it, it has. It probably goes in waves. It, you probably know better, better than I do. But, you know, like getting some other artists in here, too, to talk to the artists who've been showing here for a long time so that passing of knowledge or that mentorship can can happen eventually if we can ever be in space together (laughs) in groups. I love the idea of kicking it old school and having like a potluck where people can come in and sort of get to know each other in a space that's not necessarily when we're having a reception, but also just what are some topics that we'd like to discuss and having more of a space that feels more like a form of discussion instead of necessarily like thinking, oh, programs and making sure that all of these things are happening all the time and taking a step back a little bit, if that makes sense
0: it's also the time of year when I used to start fretting about what the show themes were going to be for the following year's calendar and sometimes I'd, I'd have left little notes to myself through the year if yes. I'd come across something and sometimes I'd look at the box and the note box was empty and then I knew it was time to leave so any early ruminations on 2021? Yeah
1: I mean I think that there's I mean I think the obvious one is sort of like a hindsight is 2020 right so <laughs> what have we learned in this last year I think that might be a a theme that we go with in some way whether that is specifically about sheltering in place or if that's about coronavirus or whatever I mean obviously the landscape is changing every five minutes so it's kind of hard to the intention might be that it will look like this but as always artists surprise us with the interpretation of that show so of any show so you never know kind of what will turn up which is sort of the magical part of that I think and then I think you know I really love the interpretation shows which I, we didn't do one this year so I would love to bring that back. And I think that brings in such a wide variety of artists, because it includes writers. And I think that would be a really interesting, you know, right now, especially, I think that would be an interesting show for later in 2021. So that's kind of what I'm thinking right now. I'm sure things will come up. We have always talked about doing some kind of like mythical creatures, you know, myths and monsters and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So
0: I did love the interpretation show. That was really my favorite show of the year. I just love when you get different art forms to speak to each other. I think that's so exciting what happens at that crossroads.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I think, you know, we're doing this Como Cal challenge sort of art challenge on social media that's just to kind of keep people's fingers busy and, you know, kind of get them to be, because there's a lot of people out there who are experiencing art blockage right now of like, what do I, what do I make? You know, and there's only so many things you can paint in your house or whatever. And, um, well, I don't know if that's true, but anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can paint a lot of things. So the thing the one we decided to do this week was find a poem that you love and then respond to it through your visual medium. I mean, I think that that is something that we we're constantly doing as visual artists is we hear a little snippet of a conversation or we've had a conversation with someone or we've experienced something and we're we're talking out that message through our medium, whatever that is. So I think that art making is already a conversation, whether it's with yourself or with your intended audience or something. And then to have that with someone who's intentionally responding to what you've made, you know, there's sort of this, it's just an extra layer of that, which I think is really cool. And I think that connection between those artists, I think, becomes really significant too.
0: Yeah, some amazing friendships were formed through that alliance because, you know, the way that we did it was you didn't meet the person whose work you were interpreting until the big reveal, until the opening reception. And so you've lived with this person's poem or piece of writing or their artwork and you've become so intimate with it and you've responded to it. Suddenly you meet the person that created it. I mean, it it was just always, I I get shivers just thinking about the receptions for that show. It was so great.
1: But we'll have to make sure we do it like later next year so that hopefully we can see people.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you're coming to the end of the members show in the next couple of weeks. And then you have a new show opening at the end of July. Tell us about that. So that
1: show is called Monochrome, which um, some people are like, does that just mean black and white? No, it does not. It means all the colors (laughs) of the rainbow. So Monochrome really is sort of the exploration of a color and what that means. So I mean, if somebody were to to turn something in that wasn't all green or something, that might be okay. But really, we're looking for that idea of (laughs) that that the artwork is predominantly one color and the variation on that, the variation being how the hue changes with shade or tone or tint, and what you can make with kind of a limited palette like that. How creative can you get with that? When I was envisioning it, I was thinking very abstract because I'm thinking of artists who work this way, like Eve Klein and, of course, Joseph Albers and Frank Stella, and thinking of like what they're sort of talking about. But I think there's a way to engage, obviously, with color that's not abstract. You know, it can be very representational as well. So it's just really like digging in and thinking about how you can explore something just from obviously from light to dark, right? <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the overall feeling. So I think, I know, I'm hoping we're going to get a bunch of different interpretations of that idea.
0: So anyone interested and they want to submit a work, what are the submission dates for that show?
1: We're trying to do everything online except bringing in your work so that we have contact lists as possible. So if you enter your work by the 24th or 25th and bring it in, then you will be a part of the juried selection.
0: 24th to 25th of July. Yes, yeah. Okay, so just a couple of weeks away.
1: Yeah, and it will hang on the. Uh, we'll open the show on the 28th of July.
0: And it'll be a show that you're opening both virtually and in reality?
1: I think so. I think so. We don't have that solidified yet. It's still kind of up in the air. We did not put the member show in a virtual space because we. We're like, okay, we're going to be open and try to encourage people to come in safely with masks and everything. But I think that you know some people don't want to leave their homes yet, or you know don't want to necessarily come in, and that that makes total sense. So if we have the person power, we will try to also put it on in the virtual space. You know, with everything it takes um, twice the amount of work.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to say a quite like that, but yes, it does. So we're trying our best, but um, it is a little bit hard to to basically do two shows simultaneously and also doing our South Gallery show and the other things that we've got going on. So
0: there is always a lot going on at Columbia Artly. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much. And um, maybe next time, let's talk about the Emerging Artist Mentorship Program, which I know is close to your heart. Yes, it is. I'll see you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. From the fine arts of the Columbia Art League, our next stop today is the theatrical stage and a visit with Adam Bretsky, the artistic director of Talking Horse Productions, where, despite the theatre being dark, they have been working on something new. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. It is lovely to have you back on the show. I have missed our weekly improv sessions, although the absence of them has allowed my stress levels to subside somewhat, which is something I guess you have not been able to do as trying to keep a theatre company afloat when the doors are closed cannot be easy. How are the collective Talking Horse Productions stress levels these days?
2: Well, I I think you hit the nail on the head. This has been a very... uh... You know, we didn't sign up for this. Uh, <laughs> I think I can say that. You know what? What's been difficult about this process is we've had a lot of starts and stops. It, it feels like what what happens is we we set a goal for our next production, we set all the plans, and, and we go through the process that we've known, which is build a production team, hold auditions, plan for the show, and uh, market, and hope for the best. And right now it seems like there's a dozen steps kind of thrown into that mix. So, you know, most recently with, uh, with our current production, E-Baby, we planned that production with a limited audience, reducing the the theater space to half, have all the audience wear masks, which will probably require no matter what, but not allow the actor, allow the actors to not be masked so that the audience could see their faces, um, And now, just recently, we've been hit with the uh, mask ordinance. You know, the mask ordinance is a great thing for the city. It's a great thing for public health. It's a very difficult thing for staging a play. In the list of exceptions, there's a lot of things for exercising, but there's not a lot for if you're portraying a role that's set in a time that they wouldn't have been wearing masks. And so then we have this difficult decision of, does it go against the artistic integrity of the play to have people in masks to do the show? And then if we do that show with the masks on, are people going to be interested in seeing it? So we're we're faced with a number of difficult challenges. And as far as those decisions, well, we're we're still thinking about some possibilities there.
0: Well, that was going to be kind of my, my next question is, you know, what are your current thoughts on restarting the Talking Horse season?
2: You know, I... I can say that I feel like I was very optimistic probably in mid-June. I felt like things were improving, businesses were opening up, movie theaters had gotten the all clear to open, albeit with social distancing in place. And really just within the end of June, early July, with cases on the rise in Colombia and with the new mask ordinance in place, I think this... This virus is here to stay for quite a bit, and it may be in the best interest of our audience and all our actors if, uh, if we have to shut things down and do things different for a little while.
0: I mean, obviously, even if you were open with social distancing requirements, you couldn't fill the theatre more than, what, 30%? What would be your number of seats? And is that viable even?
2: So that's, that's the difficulty of the situation of if we are measuring six feet, I went in this weekend to measure, and unfortunately, that only puts about 20 seats in the theater for audience. Um, when, we, uh, when we purchase licenses and, and royalties to shows, we're basing that on our full capacity, which is 70 seats. Shaving it down to 20 is not cost effective unless we can get a video licensing
3: mm.
2: agreement, which... Some theaters are very open to, however, it varies from company to company. One of the difficult things is the the company that we're working with right now for our production of eBaby, they're a tiny company uh, based out of the UK. They're not responding to emails right now. There's maybe two people in that entire office that are managing all sorts of accounts of people calling in saying, hey, we need to cancel our performance or making special requests. Their advice is that if you can't get a hold of them to cancel the production. Oh, wow. And that's generally true across the board with a lot of the licensed companies that we're dealing with in the United States. Uh, I'm sure you've seen that Broadway is closed down until 2021. Right. You know, Cirque du Soleil just filed for bankruptcy. And most equity productions don't have any contracts until 2021. And here we are in wonderful Columbia, Missouri, kind of holding out hope that we're going to get going before the end of 2020. And the longer it goes, the more unrealistic that becomes.
0: Well, I mean, I I noticed that Columbia Entertainment Company had just taken the difficult decision to cancel their next production, Arsenic and Old Lace, which I think is the right thing to do. Meanwhile, down in Jefferson City, Capital City Productions are continuing as if we're not on the steeply rising curve of a pandemic, which I have to say to me does not feel like the right thing to do, not only for the audiences, but for the actors that you're asking to be on stage and in close proximity. I I think that not holding performances right now for me is the right thing to do. I know not everybody necessarily agrees, but right. I mean you you have responsibility for the health and safety of the people that are on your stage, right?
2: Absolutely. And that's that's something that we don't take lightly. You know, I I can't speak for any theaters, but what I can say is it's it's a different culture just uh, half an hour south of Colombia. Here in Colombia, I think uh, obviously we have people that are very adamantly against the mask ordinance. But I think for the most part, at least in the circles that I'm in, most people accept this ordinance as a measure of public safety, and they look at it as a good measure. I don't know if getting that close to Capital City, if that would be the same stakes. And of course, for a business, especially a business that's just moved into a new building, they've got bills to pay, they've got creditors to pay, just having mounting periods of inactivity isn't, uh, it, it's not easy for anybody.
0: Right. So, but this weekend for you, after months of nothing going on, you've got theoretically <laughs> two things happening at once. You've got an outdoor production at Stevens Lake Park Amphitheatre yeah. and an indoor with distancing and masks, I guess, if you're still doing yes. it, the workshop for the annual Starting Gate New Play Festival. So let's start with the Stevens Lake Park event. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that we did pretty early on after we announced the the closure of the theater is we put up a survey for our patrons to respond to where we just asked very simple questions. For instance, uh, we asked about a mask policy at the theater. We asked if uh, they would be comfortable coming to the theater if social distancing and mask policies were uh, adhered to. And then we asked, okay, well, if none of this is possible, what are some things that you would be interested in uh, viewing or seeing? We asked about you know, Zoom performances. And then we asked about outdoor events. And overwhelmingly, our audience responded with they would be willing to come to an outdoor event where they could socially distance, spread out, come when they wanted, stay as long as they wanted, and then take off. So we started looking and we found that the Stevens Lake Amphitheater was rentable. And so we said, "Okay, well, we can we can do this. We are fortunate enough to have two different improv teams that can create content on the fly. And then we had a number of vocal talents in mid-Missouri that we had brought together for our our yearly Broadway Fools event, which unfortunately had to get canceled. And so we said, well, let's let's rent out the, the amphitheater for the day and let's just do all of it. People can come and they can support it. And more than anything else, we look at this event as a, uh, a thank you to the folks that have supported us through this tough time. And if folks do want to donate or they feel so inclined, we will be on hand to do that too.
0: So it starts at three o'clock. That's right. And it goes till what about eight o'clock on not this coming Saturday, but on July the 18th.
2: Yeah, July 18th, we're going to kick off with our newest improv group, The Ponies, the short form troupe. They're going to run from 3 to 5 p.m., and then we'll have our cabaret, our summer special cabaret with the vocal talent that I just mentioned. They're going to perform from about 5 to 6. We're going to take just a little break to break down some of the mics and the, the speakers and such. And then we're going to plan to do our season announcement, which, you know, I it's very suspenseful because I don't <laughs> even know what we're going to say right yet. Uh, <laughs> But that'll happen at 6.30, and then we'll finish the evening up with a performance from The Stable Boys starting about 7 p.m.
0: So, so backtracking into that a little bit, you, you do have a season for 2021. I do. So
2: the question right now is, in 2020, we had this phenomenal season planned out. You know, we, we said it was the year of the woman. It's the year of female playwrights and female identifying leading roles. Obviously, we're going to be committed to that for years into the future, But, man, I really like a lot of these scripts. And I feel like we had gotten a lot of buzz from the plays that we had already committed to producing. We had found people that were passionate about those projects. In some cases, we had full casts. And I think our audience is still interested in seeing those shows. So the question now becomes, well, do we do we take a mulligan on 2020 and try to put it up in 2021? Or do we uh, put our hands up and say, okay, well, moving forward. Um, And and that's a tough choice because all of these scripts that we found are so great. And it's easy enough that uh, I guess I could look at our proposed plans for the 2021 season and say, cool, I can take this winter off uh, (laughs) because we've already got it in the bag, but, things change so rapidly that it's it's hard to know.
0: Well, I, I applaud you for the energy that it takes to put into a situation that is so fluid and unsure and to just keep your optimism levels up. You are a better man than me because I think I'd be defeated by it. Um, and then also Saturday morning is the, your starting gate new play workshop.
2: It is, Yeah. Originally, again, we had it planned to do it at the theater. And typically, this first workshop, we only see under a dozen people that come to this first workshop. But it's a good place for the playwrights to get some feedback to have their scripts read aloud. Now we are looking into details of if we can't meet in person, how can we do that via zoom? Mm we'll have more updates probably as early as tomorrow
0: okay well adam thank you so much thank you for all the fabulous energy you continue to pour into talking horse productions you and Rashara, and um i'm very glad that you're still here so thank you <laughs> thanks so much diana <laughs> Bye. bye
3: bye we're
0: going to stay in the world of theater for our next visit Anthony Blatter is studying music at Mizzou and gave such an enchanting performance in an online workshop production of a new musical, All the Spaces, that it made me want to know more about his career. I also wanted to continue the conversation that we've had on the show in recent weeks with Black artists to ask how they feel about their profession looking forward. And I was delighted that he said yes. Good morning, Anthony.
4: Hello. Hello. How are you?
0: I am well and so delighted to speak to you. I am sure that I have seen you on stage at Mizzou over the last few years, but it was your performance as Mr. Man in the new musical All the Spaces, which we could watch on the workshop edition on YouTube last week, that was really outstanding. And for anyone who didn't see it, all the actors recorded their roles from home. So they had to imagine the interactions with the other actors. And it was all stitched together by some digital geniuses and overlaid with the soundtrack. So you were all performing your parts in isolation whilst staring at the tiny pinhole camera on your home computers. And everyone performed magnificently, but I have to admit, I was totally smitten by your performance because you filled the screen with so much energy and personality that I felt like I was watching you on a stage. And I don't even even begin to know how you did that. So first of all, congratulations. You were fabulous.
4: Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you.
0: And also thank you for so much for taking the time to chat today about your performance and career and also to continue the conversations that I've had in recent weeks that specifically explore the experiences of black and brown arts creators so thank you for being willing to have what i know is a hard and frustrating conversation and for sharing your thoughts of course So let's approach this chronologically. You went to Parkway Central High School in Chesterfield, Missouri, where you got straight A's in music, but elsewhere your grades were not all that great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me when your love for music started.
4: I would say it was my junior year of high school. I had a really amazing music teacher. His name was Mr. Silverman's just a really phenomenal model f- for me to watch and for me to learn from. And he um, introduced me to solo and ensemble festival late in, well, I, I did it early, but I, I didn't really enjoy it. And so I didn't do it my sophomore year. And then he reintroduced me to it my junior year. And he, he really worked with me on, on singing, on how to uh, express myself, how to stand still, because I struggled with that. <laughs> um, and he, he yeah, he, uh, he really helped me and guided me through music through high school for me.
0: As a child, were you the kind of child that would dance and sing around the living room?
4: Yes. Yeah, so I've heard from my mom. Um, I I would put on a, a CD of pretty much anything, if it was Jay-Z or Eminem, or yeah, whatever, and and have little dance parties for my family down in the basement of my aunt's house. <laughs>
0: Was it a musical family? Were your parents singers?
4: No, actually, not at all. My mom, um, I, I'm adopted from our little Haven adoption center, and so my mom is really like not that at all. She she, she actually doesn't know where it came from, and so yeah, I'm I'm the only like. A quote-unquote, singer in the family.
0: So you came to Mizzou in the fall of 2017 to major in music education and performance. And, and that's a big transition. Whoever you are, whatever your subject is, you go from being a top-flight student in your school to suddenly being in a huge institution with other amazing talents from around the country. What was that transition like for you?
4: It was definitely difficult. From high school... I, as you said, wasn't the best academically in other areas. So coming to a university and yes, having music classes, but those classes now look more like, you know, those classes that I didn't do well in, in high school. And so I, I, I struggled at first. I was involved in the summer bridge program, which is pretty much a, an eight week summer quote unquote vacation for you to come take two classes get them out of the way and learn from those professors and those mentors in that area it, it was through the case office the center of academic success and excellence and so I, I went through that program which really warmed me up to what a university would be like although we were taking two classes it was it was enough especially for the summer before you come to university and so that warmed me up but the amount of hours that I had to take as a music major was just a lot, and I wasn't necessarily ready for it because I, I didn't learn some of the academic skills from high school, and so it didn't translate into college yet. It started translating after my sophomore year. But the transition was difficult, and I had to do a lot of um, stepping back and learning and really focusing because I'm here at this university to graduate. I'm not here for anything else. And so to focus on strictly academics was something uh, that was really difficult for me.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of distractions when you go to university and uh, it's, it's easy to get on, on a sidetrack. Were you struggling with the music component or that was fine? And it was just all the other academic parts.
4: Both. I enjoyed singing. I really loved my choir class that I was in with Dr. Crabb. I really loved my voice lessons that I was in with Professor Tharp. But music theory, music history, diction class, th- those courses were very difficult for me because I, I just, it did not catch my interest. And when, for me, when classes don't immediately catch my interest, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I, I don't really care. But obviously, I should care. But 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 in my head, I'm like, uh, what does this do for me? But it, it it took me about a year or a year and a half to really realize, no 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 no, these classes definitely matter. And and I'm I mean I'm sitting here right now with to the left of me with my IPA handbook for singers, and I took a class on that a year ago, but I I didn't uh, necessarily enjoy the class then. So I'm, now I'm getting back into it because I'm i finally. Realize that. Oh my God! No, that is important. And so I'm going back and learning things that that I that I learned a year or two ago.
0: It seems like acting comes incredibly naturally to you. Is that the case, or is it the product of a huge amount of work?
4: I wasn't involved in a a ton of acting classes in high school. I I really enjoyed acting, and, and so I was involved in plays and musicals and things. But I wouldn't say that it comes um, naturally because I I never took a class on it. Like I love acting and I love characters and roles and things like that because it's really interesting to me. And, and so may, maybe it's, it's the interest factor. Like I'm, I'm so interested and invested in a character that I like – I really enjoy it.
0: What do you do to prepare for a character like like Mr. Man? I I often wonder if actors wander around with the character like over their shoulder, like you take them to the supermarket with you and, <laughs> and you you go out walking with them and you see what they notice. Do do you what kind of things do you do?
4: One of the things with Mr. Man that was really awesome was he was an extension of me as a person, and and so it was very easy for me to tap into. Mr. Man, I I felt that he was really quirky, really nerdy, had a whole bunch of dad jokes, and that is literally that's me. And <laughs> and so to to just amplify that or, or magnify it more to to bring it on stage to bring it to life was something that was really fun for me, and to to mess around with certain vocal ranges or how he says things or his interruptions of sentences and things like that it it, it was really it, it was really fun to navigate that
0: have you played roles where the character is not natural to you
4: definitely i played reb tevia in fiddler on the roof my senior year and that took a lot of research for me i i had to look up the jewish culture and the jewish religion and go to professors and teachers who were jewish just to hear their stories so I could have all the information that I could to then take it to the stage. It it, it was really difficult for me because I'm, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not Jewish and and I I don't know that history or I didn't know that history.
0: Well, let's take a listen to a song you performed in all the spaces. This is called Gravity. Do you want to set up the scene for us?
4: Of course. So, um, (laughs) Gravity. All right. (laughs) So I'm talking (laughs) with Gail who is played by Caleb.
0: And he's the main character in the play.
4: Yes. And um, I'm his teacher. And we're discussing some school stuff when his mom, Renee, who is played by Simone, comes in.
0: Fabulous Simone Sparks.
4: (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And I am just completely starstruck.
0: And here it is. Here is Anthony Blatter singing Gravity. What a surprise.
3: In front of me, before my eyes, this must be fantasy. I'm all tied over you. It's like there's this weight on me. I'm finding it hard to breathe. I'm hooked on your. I'm hooked on your gravity. I'll be searching for words to say forever and a day. I'm hooked on your gravity. I'm hooked on your gravity. I can't run, I can't hide. Fighting what's happening. I'm all tangled up over you. It's like there's this weight on on me. I'm finding it hard to breathe. I'm hooked on your gravity. I'm hooked
0: Gravity, sung by my guest today, Anthony Blatter, from the new musical called All the Spaces, written by Murphy Ward and Kylie Compton, with music by Murphy and Sean Campanini, which premiered as a workshop edition last week. So Going back to your arrival at Mizzou, despite all the struggles that you talked about, by the end of your second semester, you had won a national title in the National Association of Teachers of Singing competition in Las Vegas. You took home first place in the lower college men's musical theatre category out of the entire country, but you almost didn't make it to Las Vegas. Tell us about that.
4: Las Vegas was something that sounded really cool but also to me wasn't feasible financially. And so um, I I made it that far. I was invited to the national semifinals in Las Vegas, but I needed to get there. And so with the help of the School of Music, with me setting up a GoFundMe, I actually raised, um, I think, $1,200 or $1,300 for plane tickets for my mom and I and uh, yeah, yeah, just a uh, plane tickets there and back to to get there, to enjoy the competition, to have fun, and then to get back. So yeah that that was uh, that was an interesting time.
0: <laughs> was it a surprise to win, or did you just go into it thinking, telling yourself, "I've got this"?
4: Both, because I I definitely. Am confident in my abilities, but I never thought that I, I was always like, "Oh, a freshman! Like, how could you know what I mean? Like, like, no way!" Especially not knowing anything about the competition or or the national competition or anything really, because that was my first year doing it. But going into that, it was almost like a clean slate in the brain because I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But I had the confidence to know that I that I could do my best, and my best was enough. You know.
0: How did the win change your sense of self?
4: I I gained a lot of confidence in myself. Stuff that I that I didn't have as recent as a year before then. Just because coming from high school, I I loved to sing. I knew I wanted to sing, but I was never really like man, like I'm the best person in the room or or man, like I'm I'm so this or that, because I, I just didn't have the experience in it. But gaining the experience of a year of college and then going to that competition and and winning it was just like, man, like, you know what, I, I can I can do what I set out to do. and And, and I am confident in myself and other people are, too.
0: Well, it just so happens a clip of you singing your winning rendition of If I Were a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof is out there in the world of YouTube. So let's take a listen.
3: If I were a rich man, diddle 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 all day long I'd biddy, bum, if I were a wealthy man. Have to work hard. Diddle diddle, 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 digger, digger, diddle, diddle, dumb. If I were a bit, bit, bit rich, diddle diddle, 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 diddle man, I'd build a big tall house with rooms by the dozen right in the middle of the town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up And one even longer coming down And one more leading nowhere just for sure. I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese And ducks for the town to see and hear Squawking just as noisily as they can each lava can in the poor, in the mud, and the top, would lie like a trumpet on the ear, <laughs> as if to say, Here,
0: my guest Anthony Blatter winning the National Association of Teachers of Singing competition in Las Vegas a couple of years ago at the end of his freshman year at Mizzou. So now you're on the cusp of your senior year and you're potentially stepping out onto the national stage at a time when theatre and the arts in general are having a reckoning about the inherent racial inequality that pervades all branches of our creative life. So big question first, how do you feel about the future you are stepping into?
4: I feel like... The future is on the up and up in many ways. I think with coronavirus, things could be very different. I've seen pictures recently on Facebook of like full opera houses or full theater houses and things like that. And I just I personally don't think that it, it will ever get back to that ever again because of the social distancing, which is sad <laughs> to, to, to look at a picture like that and to see a full house and go wow and then but but just because of the way the world is right now i i just don't see that happening in the near future with with full houses like that i think the future is bright with telling black and brown stories i think that that is the main thing is it's about telling our stories and having a seat at the table finally And so I I think those stories will be told more and more and more until it becomes a norm and then it becomes the the thing and having black and brown people play black and brown roles and not playing black and brown roles, but but just having representation on stage. I think that that is the most important thing because I, I, I know for me growing up and watching, I mean, shoot D- disney movies uh let's say cinderella or whatever and and seeing no representation was something that that I didn't see as an issue as a kid but now looking back on it it it, it was challenging to to sit there and and see all, all of these white faces and no one that looked like me or or represented me or anything like that and if someone represented me it was in a in a not so great role or you, you know in, in a if it's a slave, or if it's a if it's a house help, or things like that, and that's not what you want to see as a as an eight year old kid, ten year old kid, when you're watching movies or shows or things, and so I I think the tides are turning definitely with representation.
0: There's also a big difference, as I've talked about with other guests on the show, between black theatre and theatre with black people in it, and. There is a lack of a willingness to perform plays that are black theatre. And then that's, I think, what we need to see more of that tell black stories that tell not only the difficult side of black history, but also the uplifting side of Mm -hmm. fabulous black and brown people that have been hugely successful and have done wonderful things that there's, you know, there's two stories, multiple stories to be told. Do you see a willingness for more black theatre spaces?
4: Definitely. I think that is definitely going to happen in the near future. I, I, I see plays written, directed, the whole thing by by black and brown faces. I see actors, actresses, black and brown faces. I see full shows that are, that are strictly about the black and brown story. Mm-hmm. And it's about time for that stuff to happen. And it's been time for, for that stuff to happen. And I'm I'm excited for these next couple of years. I'm hopeful, very hopeful to to see people that look like me up on stage, and especially for the younger generation. We were planning on doing, well, shoot, last year when we did Ragtime at the university, to be up there with a whole bunch of different people from from different backgrounds, different races, whatever, and to see kids out in the audience—I mean, you know—that that was amazing. To know that they are looking at me or looking at my friend who is who is black or brown or whatever on stage, and and for them to for them to go, man, like. I could be that, you, you know what I mean. I, I I hope that kids that kids think that, you, you know, like like I see myself in that person.
0: I'm sure you've read the Dear White American Theatre Letter, which was signed by over 300 national actors, which is an eloquent shower of hot knives into the existing theatre culture. And one of the letters many gut punches is about audiences, about how white theatre inadequately compares black actors to each other, allowing the failure of entire productions to be attributed to decisions white theatre forced upon black actors for the comfort of their white patrons, and how they continue to de Prioritize the broadening of audiences by building no relationships with black communities. And it reminded me that as a white audience member, I am complicit in this by not asking to see more black theater, not just theater with black people in it, as we just talked about. What are your thoughts on the relationship between artistic teams, not the people necessarily that are on the stage, but the people that are the directors, the casting directors, the production people, uh, and the audiences?
4: I think in the opera house, in the theater, you're generally going to attract um, a certain person. It's usually older white people that have been to the theater, you know, have season tickets and things like that and go. I feel that the audience is extremely important in telling the story outside of the, the theater house. And so if companies are attracting that certain audience, they're going to take their certain mindset of what they saw and take that out into the world to share it with other people. I think it's really important to attract a variety of people into a theater house, and that starts with the shows that you are bringing out. Mm. If you have, let's say you're doing, I don't know, Sweeney Todd, and all of your actors and actresses on stage are white, okay, well, well th- that's going to attract a certain audience. But if, let's say your, your lead is a POC, th- that that's going to attract a, a wider audience j- just because those people see that person and go, wow, Like like a... A person that looks like me is in a lead role in, in this show, in this local area, I'm, I'm going to go see that. And so that will attract a wider audience. I hope that answered the question.
0: I was reading <laughs> an interview with Lawrence Brownlee, who is a, one of our leading black tenors, and he was saying how he wanted to encourage the next generation of artistic people to become administrators and casting directors and and stage directors and conductors, because that's where inroads can be made you know if you've got a, a purely white casting team artistic team they're going to continue to show whitey mcwhite productions and they're yes. not going to they're not going to think about telling black theater stories or in inviting a fully black cast looking for those opportunities and so you know that's one of the areas where a lot needs to change we need more diverse boards boards tend to be male pale and stale
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i love that
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of work to be done there and in the administrative teams and there is no shortage of fabulous black actors and conductors and and musicians and singers and operatic voices. It's just having somebody say, "Yeah, I want to do this," and making it happen. Um, so, I'm wondering, as you're looking at graduating, where, or oh, in, in a year or so, where do you want to put your energies in the future?
4: I definitely want to go to grad school and, and, and work my way all the way up. I would love to either get my vocal performance degree or. MFA in acting and then continue to move up to a doctorate level and just continue my education. I, I, I think knowledge is so important and educating yourself is so important. And we, we have to do that our whole lives or, or we'll, we'll become stale and boring. <laughs> and, and so I think education is, is really important. and I, And I see myself continuing that after undergrad.
0: But do you see, long term, do you see yourself being on the operatic stage, being on a musical theatre stage, or being an educator and being in academia?
4: All things. I see myself doing all of those things because I have a drive and a desire to do all of them, and so why not? I definitely want to educate in the long run. I want to give back to a community or my community in need and that is one of the most important things to me is education and so I definitely wanna wanna bring that back, bring my knowledge back to to kids that look like me or, or you know, or don't look like me, but need someone like me in, you know, a teacher position mm-hmm. and to educate that way. I would love to I would love to be in an opera someday. I would love to play a leporello or Don Giovanni even. Mm-hmm. I also would love to be on stage in a musical theater production. I, I I would love to to do that. Go east and audition and audition and re-audition and audition ten times more <laughs> and try my luck that way. I, I I would love to do all all of those things.
0: Tangential question, but hugely topical. What do you think about Hamilton?
4: I actually I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I I I listened to all the music way before, and so I knew I knew the music kind of understood how it how it all tied together. But watching it, towards the end, I was just in tears with how beautiful everything was woven together. All the themes came back. And yeah, just a a really beautiful story.
0: Not strictly true. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like they've um, made him into maybe a slightly better character than the person that he was in in real life. Um, Any other thoughts on steps towards change that you'd like to see happen?
4: Just, it's not about getting your foot in the door anymore. It's about actually being in the room, and so having white allies that say, "Yes, we we need this person or these people in the room here to have to have a voice, to have a say," and those black and brown people making that happen, those white allies making that happen, and then I just see. The future of theater, the future of of opera, the future of any performance style to be brighter th- than it is today, than it was a year ago, than it was yesterday. Because everyone is working for change. Everyone is working for a better, more equal life on stage, off stage in the production team, in whatever facet of the musical theater world that you can think of. I think a lot of people are working for working for a better change a better future and so i see i see that being one of the things to look to look towards
0: well i'm on that happy note <laughs> we'll end i'm glad that you are hopeful i always struggle to be hopeful when it comes to people i think that we are not necessarily the best species but uh.
4: <laughs> no that's true <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm. Uh, when I hear your hope, it give, it gives me hope. So I will continue to uh, be the best ally that I can and and ask for change to happen because I I want to see more black theater because it helps me understand more as a as a foreigner and as a as a white person. I want to know more about the American experience and I only see a tiny sliver of the story right now on the theater stages yeah. and. Um, I'm excited to see more and excited to see more of you. I mean, you are fabulous on the stage. So thank you, Anthony, so so much for coming to share your thoughts and time. And I wish you every success. Thank you. And that is it for another week. I will post a link to the Columbia Art League's entry form for their upcoming monochrome exhibit and a link to the Talking Horse Summer Special event on the Speaking of the Arts Facebook page, And if you want to listen to this show again, or suggest it to someone else, all the episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene. And until then, stay arty, Columbia.